0: Apparently, the way you become one of the most popular, if not the most popular, personal finance commentator in America is just to spout off nonsense angrily. So I think I have a chance, Dougals. This could be me in 15 years. I think it's you in 15 minutes.
1: This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Douglas, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Hello, sir. How are you?
0: A little frustrated with you.
1: Yeah, see that that's why I'm that's why I'm being ever so kind to you, henceforth. <laughs> good sir. Good day, Chop. <laughs> this is one of those I came on, and Skippy says I got beef with you. And, it, and i'm like what beef he goes if you don't know what beef i have with you
0: you don't really love me you know you're making stuff up but i mean we both traveled this week and then i had to fire the or i had to follow the jim harbaugh stuff i've had mm-hmm. a busy week man it, there's plenty of frustration on my plate no 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 you don't even know frustration until you bring up dave ramsey I do, because apparently the way you become one of the most popular, if not the most popular, personal finance commentator in America is just to spout off nonsense angrily. So I think I have a chance, Douglas. This could be me in 15 years. I think it's you in 15 minutes, <laughs> if we're being honest.
1: And why not just be honest about this? Dave Ramsey has built this career. He's come up a lot more on this show than I thought he would, by the way. He's built this career of providing advice, financial advice, personal financial advice to people. How do you get out of debt? How do you build your savings? And now he's starting to venture into the the world of how do you invest? And none of it, like 0.00% of it is not
0: dangerous. I just gave a lot of negatives there. So let me just be clear. It's stupid. Is it not stupid? Yeah, I mean, so what's going on here is that uh, epic nine-minute rant where his co-host kindly tries to... Okay, if you guys have nine minutes and want to be depressed, just watch this video and watch his co-host, who obviously is employed by him, and livelihood depends on him. Watch how terrified she is to try and correct something that she obviously knows is wrong because she like tries to jump in three times and he just yelled over top of her. And then she bites her lip and goes home. It's like, really, you could see so much of the dynamic of his company, which has been well-documented and has a incredibly poor track record of treating people with respect. Here's what he said. He has this one index fund that he really likes, which charges really high fees that benefit him. That happens to have a decent track record. The decent track record happened like this from memory, but like 30 years ago. So. For all intents and purposes, it's slightly outperformed the S&P 500 over a significant period of time. It hasn't done that recently, and it won't do that in the future. I'm happy to say (laughs) that because it charges high fees. (laughs) But so whenever he talks about investing in stocks, he says you can make 12% a year. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. The price of admission with investing in stocks is the volatility and the fact that, yes, on average, you might be able to make 12% a year but you have some years where you're down 30% and you have some years where you're up 20% and then up 40% and then up 10% like this is what happens so how do you even talk about this diggles how what made him so mad that he had to call everyone in the finance community that actually does math an idiot. Like he went out of his way to insult people and say they live in their mom's basements when they just are doing sound analysis of retirement withdrawal rates. What, do you know why he has got so angry about all this? Oh, no. I mean, he just gets angry. I think sometimes people just start
1: getting angry. I don't know. But <laughs> the thing he... The, the common rule of thumb that is provided is that you take 4% out of uh, every year out of your retirement fund when you're retired in order to live on that's the common rule of thumb now that rule should not could not apply to everybody because everyone's situation is different but that's the common rule of thumb somebody calls in states that common rule of thumb and dave ramsey gets angry but i want to i want to read can i read a little bit here from what he says Mm -hmm. if you're making 12 that's what you were talking about If you're making 12 in good mutual funds and the S&P has averaged 11.8, and if inflation in the last 80 years has averaged 4%, if you make 12 and leave 4% in there for inflation, that leaves you 8. So I'm perfectly comfortable drawing 8. A million dollars should be able to create for you $80,000 income, boys and girls, perpetually, like forever. You should be able to pull 80000 forever. And never destroy it. So, what he suggests? Nay, 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 nay. What he demands of people is they take eight percent out of their retirement every year. Almost unequivocally, this will bankrupt you.
0: Uh, no, this has a forty-three percent chance of bankrupting you. Almost, 30. almost unequivocally. <laughs> Hey, don't be like him. Don't be just making random stuff up <laughs> and screaming it into a mic. It's basically a coin flip. There's some really good analysis because this fired a lot of people up. Um, there's some really good analysis. Now, Douglas. let me get the caveat out of the way. I like the book Die With Zero by Bill Perkins, which has different approach that says it, your goal in life is not to have a 100% guarantee that you never spend down your money and live your entire life in fear saying, I I have all this money, but I can't enjoy it. Like if you, if you twist your mindset to say, you know, I, I want to be more risky than average because I want to actually live my life. We can have a conversation about a withdrawal rate greater than three or 4%, but it that's not what he's doing here. He's misinterpreting the math on, a thousand fronts and actually providing guidance that says that there's effectively a zero percent chance that you run out of money if you take eight percent out of your investing account on top of that he's also making an assumption that you should have 100 percent of your money in a large cap equity fund which is also insane <laughs> like basically no diversification saying that the s p 500 is where you put 100% of your nest egg to get that 12% return is maybe the most insane of all these takeaways. This is partially, so my, my
1: unequivocally was probably too strong. The reason I stated is because the, the 43% number in the math that you're talking about is in a particular scenario. I'm saying that generally, if, if you take, what do you think the average person is pulling in in their retirement account? It's not this. It's not twelve percent a year, yeah. It shouldn't be, yeah. So, but so I'm saying, if the average person were to take out eight percent, I would bet you're going to get much higher than a forty-three percent failure rate on this, because you're probably talking more in like the six to seven percent you're making every year. No, I I, I can sing you no? the
0: the numbers yes. on that. A lot of people broke down like uh um, okay. okay, basically Monte Carlo simulations of this happening over the past 130 years with an eight percent withdrawal rate okay so like it's, so a, it's, it's a coin flip. person okay. okay yeah it's That's a fair. coin flip if you were comfortable putting a hundred percent of your retirement savings in <laughs> like large cap equities like in a ssp 500 fund which has all sorts of other problems because if you happen to be retired in a period that mirrors the great depression your the value your total wealth goes down like 30% one year 40% the next and all of a sudden you had a million bucks and now you have 300k in that scenario with you withdraw 8% you obviously go bust because your wealth evaporates in 2 to 3 years so that's the main reason why in a smart retirement savings account you're gonna own different types of assets that are less volatile to manage your risk so it's not eighty, $80 thousand dollars a gets... year forever is what you're telling me no not at all if, <laughs> if you had a hundred percent i mean i didn't feel like i needed to do numbers but maybe i will if you had a hundred percent of your money in the s p 500 equivalent i know it didn't exist in the Great Depression, like in 1929, you have a million bucks. According to this Yahoo, known as Dave Ramsey, you could pull out eighty thousand dollars a year in perpetuity. Well, two years later, when that million bucks is now worth four hundred k, and I don't even know the exact uh, drawdown percentages off the top of my head, even if you're still pulling eight <laughs> percent, you're not pulling eighty <laughs> yeah, k yeah, out of this yeah. thing. You're rolling like thirty six.
1: And, uh, and so so broadly i mean this gets back we talked a few times about listening to gurus blindly and we talked specifically about dave ramsey and there are lessons you could learn from dave ramsey about a whole bunch of things this is not one of them that you should take away is what we are saying
0: i'm ready to go maybe further than that i i almost think you can't listen to anything he says i admired the his strategy for getting people out of debt. Cause I think that's worked for a fair amount of people, but at this point for all I know, he's buying reviews that say that works. Like I haven't seen anything for, he has a strong track record of not being honest and not being truthful. I, I'm ready to say you don't believe anything he says. What's maybe worse than all this is, one, he's already gone bankrupt once, so I don't know that, that your financial guru is a person that's gone bankrupt. Two, he diverts his people to financial advisors that charge ridiculous fees and mutual funds that actually rob people. The track record here is about as bad as it gets, Douglas. Oh, and he doesn't treat people that he works with with respect. He bullies people with lawsuits if they say something different than him. I think we can move on. I just don't think he's believable in any way, shape, or form. All
1: right, let's, let's, let's end the Ramsey talk on that note. What you got in the fishbowl?
0: I mean, you got me all fired up over here. I'm pretty excited about my portfolio. I'm pretty excited about small cap stocks. I'm pretty excited about value stocks. I'm pretty excited about even some debt instruments, uh, which we've talked about. There's Corporate debt is now intriguing. I gotta pull this up, I sent it to you. There's this real life example of a stock, this mining stock, it's called Ramico Resources in Sheridan, Wyoming. Just wanna ring a bell with you, Dougals? I mean, I know you sent it over to me, but I try and ignore these things. <laughs> okay. The, the thing I find fascinating about this stock is it allows us to do a real-life example of uh, probabilistic outcomes. And I think that could be a really good lesson for people in terms of how you make decisions in life. And this is a super easy example of it. So the Wall Street Journal uh, yesterday, now Thursday, published this article that says a $2 million mine might hold a 37 billion dollar treasure hmm yep too good too good for a value investor not to read right <laughs> long story short this uh wall street banker named Rand- randall atkins bought a mine years ago for two million bucks sight unseen it was just like here's a mine it has some stuff it's probably worth more than two million bucks he buys a thing he runs the company and is making a decent profit. The market cap of this company, which is METC, has been hovering around 500 million to maybe a billion bucks. So clearly it is worth more than the 2 million he paid for it. Mining some boring types of coal or something. They think they found something that's more exciting and they came out with their Q3 earnings, saying that they found rare earth metals potentially uh sorry rare earth supplies which are largely found in china and it's a big deal relating to batteries and everything else long story short if there's rare earth minerals in this mine it's not worth the current market cap of a billion bucks it's worth potentially 37 billion dollars so i dig around with this it's Clearly a coin flip at best. Like they have enough information. They have some samples that have been verified to have this much more valuable material, but there's no real proof, right? They but they did have enough to go out in Q3 and say, like, there's a potential to happen here. I look at a stock like this, I did a back of an envelope analysis, and to be clear, I haven't bought it yet, and I I doubt I will, because it's not it's a leap of faith. Here's how I do the analysis. Actually, before I walk you through that, let me shut up and let you jump in with some thoughts on this. I have two main thoughts, both of which are just your bunch of nonsense is what both of these come
1: down to. The first thought is this. Why must you think about or buy anything that involves the word coals? Such a good point. (laughs) um, my sec this is why my I second to you i'm not yeah because <laughs> because i think you got some subliminals going on that are if <laughs> you see the word coals and you have to buy it my second thought is when you 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 pitch this as a like something a value investor would want but then if you abstract out the commentary that you're making it sounds more like a speculation but basically here's what you're here's what i hear you're yeah. saying you go there's this thing that's $12 million or sorry, that's a uh, cost $2 million. That could potentially be almost $40 billion. If you picture the future, if you imagine that it has things that it does not have, it, like, is that, am I wrong? Because usually when you come to me,
0: you're saying this thing is you're, it's spitting you're out. <laughs> you're wrong. Because when we talk about Twilio and you take mm-hmm. me to the future and you're like, oh, in the future, it's going to make money, but it doesn't. What's potentially happening with this model that's so fascinating is I'm not ch- I'm not saying anything changed. All that potentially happened is there were really valuable minerals that had always been there that this company has rights to that no one knew about. So the the value of the stock has the potential to go up 37 times. Anyway, that's not the interesting point. Here's the interesting point. You can write down an equation. You can assign probabilities and you can come out with a probabilistic value and then say, am I willing to make that bet or not? So if I was going to make a bet in this, one, it would be tiny. But two, here's what I'd do. I'd say, you know, for the past five years, the thing's been trading around 500 million, pays a 5% dividend or something. That's probably the fair value of this thing. So there's a 95% chance that this company is worth 500 million but there's a 5% chance that this company might be worth 37 billion do all the math on that and do you know what because uh, I I did this on a napkin last night yeah do you know what the probabilistic value if you believe those percentages of this company should be me. 2.3 billion dollars it's currently trading for like less than a billion in market cap so you could very easily get to that point and say, "Hey, I know that I'm taking a little bit of swag, but at least your uh at least you have a sound process to say." That, in my logic, this could be a value stock because I have a margin of safety of more than a half. Now, I don't I certainly don't expect that to happen. But I, man, when's the last time you had a 37 bagger, huh? It's been a while. <laughs> it's, it's it's been a while. All right so I'm just, I just give that. all the usual caveats this is not investment advice this would be a research recommendation it just it was on the front page of the wall street journal no, it no, was, no. like I, it was so it hit me in the face like they're they're honestly re- allowed to write this headline that says the stock <laughs> is 37 I get times I, undervalued it's hilarious
1: i, I get it and j- just giving you a hard time i'm just i just picture the world where someone comes in and pitches you and says I have this thing that may have assets that I don't know about, that you don't know about. To be honest, the assets don't know about these assets the assets might have. And if this, these assets are had, it is worth 37 times what it's worth right now. Yeah. Can I have your money? And you go, <laughs> probabilistically, yeah. Like, okay, sure. whatever, Whatever you want to do. Whatever you want to do. Okay, I'm going to read you this quote. I'm, I'm, I'm switching gears a little bit here. Yeah. I going to read you this quote. I don't know exactly where this quote comes from, but I know it comes, somebody sent it to me. I know it comes from a Bloomberg piece and I, I, I have speculation as to where it comes from, but I don't want to assign it to the wrong place. Mm-hmm. But I just think it's kind of fascinating and not wrong. Here it goes. The late 2010s were weird, man. If you were a founder with perfect foresight, And you had a fully informed choice between grow sustainably, make money, and have a profitable business that lasts for centuries, and, number two, grow way too fast, get that sweet, sweet soft bank money, and flame out extremely publicly in a couple years, I think that the objectively rational choice would still be to take that soft bank money. Ooh, is this Adam Newman? I think, I believe it's from a Bloomberg piece that is about Adam Newman. I believe, but I don't have a Bloomberg account here, so I couldn't like click into it to to uh, to verify. But I, I think you. that's what it's from. Yeah. Um, and this, what what I read this is, I want I, one. I think this might be right, and two, you love talking about incentives. When we set up in a system where that is the incentive structure, how messed up is that? Where objectively, it let's just imagine this true for a second. Objectively. The choice that a person should make is to take money, make irrational, non probabilistic bets, flame out. And they would be better off if that's the case than if they grew a
0: sustainable, money making, profitable business. Messed up. Uh man, so I wasn't even gonna go here, but I was at a conference this week and there are lots of great speakers. Fun event. One of the individuals that I, I had never heard of before is a venture capitalist named Bryce Roberts. And I don't know much about his background, but he currently runs Indie VC. Have you ever heard of this guy? I don't think so. What was so fascinating about his talk is he effectively said uh, venture, capital- uh, venture capitalism is kind of dumb, even though I'm a venture capitalist who's, <laughs> who's made lots of money. And it was the exact opposite of this quote. It was like the smart founders going forward may take $3 million in seed money, but they should get to profitability as quickly as possible. He had this huge quote on the hundred foot screen that said, uh, for startups, black is the new black, right? Like you should actually make a profit yep. Yep. and yep, yep. then you should, uh, with, once you start making a profit quickly after the seed funds, you should keep all the equity to do yourself. And run like Zapier. I don't know if you know that company, but they took yeah. seed funding and now they're worth multi-billion dollars and the founder owns like 75% of it. Now, the reason that's an impell- compelling case right now is because it's a lot harder to raise funds. So you don't have the option. Like SoftBank doesn't really, they're not out there writing the same type of checks. But I'm naturally inclined to this and I had a chance to talk to Bryce um, a little bit to just say, One, I think you're right. But two, I think you're insane because you're a venture capitalist. And he kind of owns up to that. What do you think about... He also talked to me specifically about the fun part about that. If someone actually does take a small check from him, is they get to profitability quick and they don't delude him like crazy. It's playing a different game.
1: The game he's not playing is the put a whole bunch of bets out there and you make money off the ones that end up crushing cuz he's kind of not betting on stocks that crush crush right, right. He, he's betting on stocks that do very well and that he's not diluted from that's different than you're trying to get the the next 100 billion dollar business and so it's a different game is basically what he's what he's playing there is what i would say i i've never seen that game played so I, I don't have a lot of view in it, but like it doesn't, that doesn't sound like a venture capitalist. Like I think there's like a different term for that. That sounds more just like a small business investor.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. You know what I
1: mean? Like that, that's what, and I know these are just terms that we're throwing out, but generally in venture capital, like you were looking to grow companies that are going to go public at high valuations or get bought at high valuations. like. That's the game that that uh that's generally played, and but it might just be terminology that I'm kind of making up here. But that just sounds like someone that wants to invest in a small business that's going to make money for them, and like there's nothing wrong with that. It's just different.
0: Yeah. Anyway, I didn't mean to steal your thunder. So back to
1: your point. Oh no, no, I think it's it's not stealing thunder. I think it's it is a part of the same general point that the incentive structure that's been built is one where we are telling you, entrepreneur. That you personally could be better off by swinging so hard for the fences that even if you strike out, you're sorry, even if your business strikes out, you will do particularly well.
0: That is the incentive structure that's been that was developed, and that's fairly ludicrous because the guy that um the founder, I shouldn't say guy, he or she that runs uh, or creates from scratch a company that starts doing 500 million in revenues at 25% margins. That's an impressive feat. But someone like Adam Newman, because of his mindset maybe, but also because of the amount of money he raised, a company like that wouldn't even get the VCs like a decent return on their funds. So it became this binary game of, or nothing. Like you have to be the next Google, or it's a failure. And I just see a lot of middle ground here. You said small business before. I think there's some truth to that. I I'm fine with mid-sized to large business, but if you raise too much money, you're just at the mercy of the people who wrote you checks. Yeah. No. I I fully agree. It's a
1: it's definitively a a balance that you have to strike here. And there's also when. When we talk about profitability there's a a difference between understanding that a business could be profitable but you are investing in growth and not knowing whether a business could be profitable yeah
0: yeah yeah and you are investing in growth those are and i think those are also two very different things i think the last decade there's been a lot of companies that don't honestly know if they can become profitable but are invested in growth because it was so easy to get the next check when you're like yeah. on Series H, it <laughs> yeah. gets a little crazy. It does. It really like it really really does, right?
1: Because then you're anyway. We I could go down into the preferences, liquidity preferences and whatnot, but we don't need to go down that road. It does become quite wild.
0: Yeah. So my fishbowl is that I'm hoping I can get you to talk about something. I know Uh-oh. you had an encounter with Isaiah Thomas this week. And I did. I'd really like to yell about it. <laughs> You want to yell about that in particular? So to give some context about Isaiah,
1: this this is not about Isaiah in particular, but I I will drop one one thing on Isaiah. But Forbes uh, had the the first inaugural event called Forbes BLK, which is an event for Black professionals, Black leaders in the space that Forbes ran. It's pretty cool. It was one I'd say it was awesome being in a space like that. It's so rare to be in a space like that, and it. It leads to things I do not see at typical conferences. I'll give you two examples. At a typical conference, somebody's on stage, and they say something that resonates with the audience, and I hear, like, a soft clap that gets a little bit louder. That's what I hear. Yeah, yeah. This conference, somebody says something resonate with the audience. Many people ran up the aisles to the front and started, like, in Baptist church style, waving their hands. A couple of people might have fainted. I mean, it's it amazing. was amazing. It was amazing at the uh at the like happy hour, you know, like that that happens right after the conference. It was mood lighting. It had like bomb music. The electric slide happened within six and a half minutes of this thing gone on. No. there was an electric slide <laughs> gone down. I am I promise you, it was so phenomenal. anyway, awesome event. Isaiah Thomas was there and talked about uh, how he started his business, Isaiah International, and started it from the time he was still playing basketball. Uh, And so he just discussed that and what it's like to be in business and all this other stuff. And the thing that he said, though, that surprised me was, so people are probably familiar about three years ago in 2020, the last dance came out about the Bulls run in the 90s. Isaiah said that the last dance is the way that he found out that he and Michael Jordan had beef. He's like, I didn't even know. I didn't know we had beef. And then I'm asked to, he said, like, Michael called me to ask me if I could be in this. And I was like, yeah, sure. Of course. He goes, and then I'm in this, this show. And through this show, I learned that me and this dude have beef going back 30 years. (laughs) I I was just like that. That
0: to me is fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. It's fascinating because it's a lot about, uh how the human brain works, because I knew that MJ had beef (laughs) with Isaiah Thomas. And, like, listen, I've only been to the United Center in Chicago one time. I mean, (laughs) he got him kicked off the Dream Team, didn't he? No, he, he, Jordan.
1: Yeah, he said he found that out from the last dance.
0: Isaiah said he found that out from the last dance. No, I mean, Isaiah, come on, man. I want to, like, I want to console him. Put a little arm around him and be like, dude, the signs were there. You missed it <laughs> for 30 years. Jordan hates you. And clearly, well, no, I shouldn't say that. Jordan has his own idiosyncrasies. I was going to say clearly that Isaiah did something to deserve this, but that might not be true. He, Isaiah could have like tied his shoe wrong and Jordan's so competitive, he would have been like, I will crush that guy for the next 30 years and make a documentary about him that makes him look bad. It's very possible it, it's very it's very possible because he
1: was saying like when when jordan came to chicago his family was helping him out like he like he's like stayed with us for a bit so like, like he was describing
0: this as if this was a situation in which the families were close we were friends wait wait so, wait in 1983 when jordan gets first drafted something m- like that maybe maybe no, I don't, you know. So,
1: so, so this so I think the point you're going down is like this is before elbows were thrown between the Pistons and the Bulls. Like yeah, this, there's a I lot mean, that like, happened. They might
0: have been, been buds. They uh, might have been buds. Jordan's rookie year. It just it disintegrated yeah. <laughs> a little bit after that. Maybe when Isaiah. Maybe when your team was like chack- tackling him on the court and trying to kick him <laughs> in the junk. Maybe that
1: just things with sour. Yeah. The other thing, the other thing he said was that. There was some time where he mentioned who the greats were in the 80s. And he said, Magic Johnson, Dr. J, Larry Bird, that there might be some. Oh, and can Kareem. Mm-hmm. He goes, and Jordan wasn't on that list. Because Jordan. 80s. That's what he said. He goes, Jordan came in the 90s. That's the 90s. Jordan but didn't apparently, make it to
0: the. Uh, but he didn't. But he was in a couple of Eastern Conference finals in the late 80s before. Yeah. You know, And he's saying, but apparently leaving him off that list,
1: apparently leaving him off that list was a problem. He was a, he was very calm. He was standing up on stage, very calm. So it was a cool event. It was a really cool event. I'm happy uh, Forbes did it. I hope they, they keep it up because they, I think there's a lot of power to it. Very happy about that. Speaking of a lot of power, speaking of a lot of power, can I talk about zombie companies? Please do. Uh,
0: So your investment portfolio?
1: You're not wrong. Let's talk about zombie companies. So, we've mentioned this at a a higher level before, where the broad definition of a zombie company is a company that is only around because they are able to take out debt. Like, debt is keeping them around. Uh, And there's this study, The Rise of the Walking Dead, zombie firms around the world, done by a couple people. Uh, out of the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. And what they looked at, one of the things they looked at was the number of zombie companies. Looked at this across about 60 countries, and it was almost evenly split between what they're calling advanced countries and emerging markets. And they looked at the number of zombie companies and the state of those zombie companies. Uh, and there are just a couple points that I want to raise here. Uh, one point is, that, is how they define zombie company because we gave the definition at a high level. So I just want to say how, uh, how they defined it. And then one little observation that's not entirely surprising, but I think it's telling on the change in the number of zombie companies if you compare 15 years ago to today. And today, I think the end of the data in 2022. So those are two things I want to highlight. First, they look for companies with interest rate or interest coverage ratio below one. Mm-hmm. So you, you can't pay the interest on your debt. The leverage ratio is above the median in the same industry. So, the percentage of debt they have, and they've experienced negative real sales growth. So, those are the three indicators they looked at. And those things had to persist over two consecutive years.
0: That's the. So, these are easy stocks to short if you wanted to short stocks. I mean, as these long as you're not in South Korea. As long as you're not in South Korea. Yeah. The,
1: I joke about that because South Korea is just banned shorting for some period of time the uh yeah i mean i think that's the point is like they're saying these are these are companies that had they not been able to get cheap 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 debt would have gone out of business so if you take those three things you say you have a high percentage of debt you can't afford your interest rate payments and your sales are going down so your ability to be able to generate money to pay them in the future does not look very promising so that's how they defined it and they looked at both listed so public and private companies. Here's some numbers, and this is by percentage of, of of companies here. So if you go back to, let's go back to 08, because 08 it was going down, right? Mary J. Blige was singing up a storm in 08 about how it was going down. In 08, on the private company front, they have about two percent of companies were zombie companies, and listed is about six percent, little under six percent. That's an 08. Everything was melting. The world was coming to an end. Oh, wait. there you go? Actually, 2021 was the, the last year they have. You get a 2021, which is not even today. Which is not even today. Today would be even worse. Over 10%. So nearly double on the, the listed front. And private was almost 6%. Nearly triple. Mm-hmm. When I say fry, you
0: You're, say You. T- okay. I mean, you <laughs> okay. You act surprised. Of course. Of course this happened. Did I not say to you,
1: we were comparing this to 2008?
0: No, but... So, the reason why there's more in 2021 is because there's access to cheap debt. It'd be one, yes. one thing. Now, I'd love to see the like real-time number in 2023. It doesn't exist because this analysis is hard. That would be fascinating mm-hmm. because we seem to be at the cusp of maybe something happening. It just... It, I mean, something already happens in terms of the change of interest rates, which would uh, exactly impact this equation. If 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 a company, if a company could not
1: afford its interest rate payments in twenty twenty uno, when your interest was zero <laughs> yeah. percent, then when your interest, I mean, assuming I don't know, you know, whatever their debt was, let's just assume you will take on more debt. When your interest is five percent, ostalo bye bye. This is not gonna yeah, you absolutely can't afford it
0: yeah it's just so anyway a little bit of doom and gloom it's all good but interesting analysis. bankruptcies are up i mean these zombie company numbers might be down it, i haven't seen a study that ties all the puzzle pieces together but like there might be less zombie companies now than there are in 2023 because some of them have shut their doors in the past six months
1: that could be true that could very well be true but that uh this is looking at percentage of companies, so it still would be interesting to see what the percent of companies is, even if the absolute number goes down. But I, I would be curious. But again, like you said, I mean, you have to have some historical data to run this. So they could probably run if they wanted to run this, they'd have to wait until next year, you know, a few months to be able to run it again. But I am, I'm very curious. But to your point, you said I should not be surprised because of zero interest rate. Yes, and you can see the impact of that. And here we talked about. The incentive structure that created for startup founders and now you're looking at it for public companies
0: even worse for public companies i tell you oh my goodness anyway i mean i, I actually it's so funny i think that zombie uh companies analysis kind of mirrors commercial real estate so commercial real estate bit. before covid had high occupancy so it's probably like e- High occupancy, low debt. So you could cover, you know, you could pay your bills. And then COVID happened, your occupancy goes down. So even at current interest rates, you you might not be able to pay your bills. And then interest rates go way up. And you're seeing those properties turn over a third of their previous sale values. So these companies, if they're worth anything, which they're probably not, uh, need to take a massive haircut, man. They needed The barber needs to get in there, trim that thing up. Pull out the razor blade. Just cut all that out. off. Get the back of that neck. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. Got
1: to get the back of that neck. Agreed. Agreed. That's a wrap for me.
0: Yeah. Thanks for hanging out today. Hit us with some listener mail. SkippyDougals at com. Check out the new book by Morgan Housel. Same as ever. Quality read. Super fast read. Read it this week. Uh, check out charitywater.org. I ran into Scott Harrison this week, the founder. His story is fascinating. And effectively, folks, 52% of all disease in Africa is caused by dirty water. It's a There's an easy fix if you want to uh, dig into that. I was impressed with his talking points. 100% of donations go to solving the problem. So that's cool. And we do offer premium subscriptions. If you want to support the show, you can find that at com. I miss anything, Douglas? I think you got it. We appreciate you you hanging out with us. This is our 150th episode. It's wild. Amazing. Talk about upsets. Talk about upsets. Holy cow. (laughs) Um, Love it. We'll see you guys next week.